Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Chicago has 400,000 lead service lines, the most of any U.S. city. The EPA estimates there are at least 6 million lead pipes nationwide. And President Joe Biden has pledged to replace every single one of them. His initial infrastructure plan set aside $45 billion towards those efforts. But the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed allocates only a third of that. So is that funding enough to solve the country's lead problem? And how much help will be available to Chicago and Illinois? We'll ask Jeremy Orr. He's a senior attorney for the Safe Water Initiative at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he knows why lead pipes are still a deep source of worry in many communities. You know, lead pipes are problematic for a number of reasons, but but most importantly, they're detrimental to uh, human health and well-being. Right? We know that no level of lead consumption is safe uh, for human consumption, right? So with that in mind, uh, you know, lead is a dangerous neurotoxin that causes irreversible harm to our nervous systems and, uh, you know, it's created really an epidemic in this country. And, and what we've been finding is that lead service lines are disproportionately in, you know, communities of color and low-income communities throughout the country and in particular throughout the state of Illinois. The infrastructure bill allocates $15 billion to replacing the lead pipes around the country. What do you think about that amount of funding? Is it enough? You know, it's a start, right? I mean, you know, when, when we kind of look at uh, where we've come from, we look at uh, this being, you know, kind of really the first administration to uh, prioritize the removal of lead service lines in this manner, it's certainly a start. But we definitely need more money, right? I, I know, you know, the Biden administration and the Build Back Better agenda called for uh, $45 billion, right? So this is essentially a third of that. Uh, mm-hmm. So it'll help, you know, get many communities going, but we certainly need uh, more and and full funding to replace all these pipes throughout the country. What about here in Illinois? Lawmakers estimate that we'll receive at least $1.7 billion to improve drinking and wastewater throughout the state. Are you optimistic about that funding and what it can do? I am. Yeah, very optimistic. Uh, You know, this summer, uh, you know, the state of Illinois passed the Lead Service Line Notification and Replacement Act, which requires municipalities and utilities to begin replacing uh, lead service lines on a specific time frame. And, and one of the things that uh, we've been trying to work through since the passage of that bill is funding, right? Where's funding going to come from? Uh, and how do we fund this work in a way that doesn't put the burden on ratepayers and, and homeowners? At this point, Jeremy, we, we don't know much about how that money is going to be distributed. What do you think would be the best way to do so? I think there are a, a couple of different ways. And in particular, when I think about the state of Illinois, with the passage of that bill, it also created a fund, right, a, a lead service line replacement fund, which could accept federal dollars and have a protocol for distributing that money in particular to the communities that are hardest hit, the communities with the most lead service lines and the most vulnerable communities. There needs to be some sort of mechanism or funding uh, for that funding to prioritize uh, just that, right, the communities that need it most, the communities that are disproportionately impacted, um, so that they can they can get that money quickly and put those dollars to work. As you mentioned before, you know, communities of color stand to lose out here. Illinois is just one of several states that mandates the full replacement of all lead service lines. So can you tell us what areas in Illinois are most impacted by these lead pipes? Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah, we, we saw a, a report come out uh, of the Metropolitan Planning Council earlier this year, right, that showed that 90% of you know, the lead service lines throughout the state are estimated to be in majority communities of color, black and brown, uh, indigenous communities, uh, including Asian, Asian American communities. Uh, so when you think about that, right, 90% of the state's potential uh, more than 1 million lead service lines are disproportionately impacting these communities of color. Under this law, Chicago has until 2077 to remove all of its lead service lines. Now, as of October, the city has only removed 12. And that's uh, according to Axios Chicago reporter Monica Ang. She extensively covered the issue while she was working here at WBEZ. What does it take, Jeremy, to replace a lead service line? You know, that's been a point of disappointment for many folks who have been working on this issue. On, on one hand, you know, we have the city uh, and the current mayor finally acknowledging, right, that we have a lead service line problem and setting up a program that's going to allow us to begin to tackle it. But on, but on the other hand, the implementation side of that has been slow uh, at best, right, to say the least, at a point where, you know, they were supposed to replace 600 pipes in the first year. And yet, uh, as Monica reported, they replaced 12. And it's been over a year and a half, right, since they've announced that program throughout Chicago. Mm-hmm. What, what's um, getting and, in the know, way of it, replacing them? That's the million-dollar question, right, because we know the funding is there, right? They have federal funding as, as well as local funding to do the work. We know that communities need it. We know that applications have been coming in to get their lead service lines replaced by homeowners. Uh, and really, I think a, a big part of it comes down to the political will to prioritize it in a meaningful way, in a timely way, and making it an urgent issue as, as you know, we're seeing it on the ground, right? Urgent in that it's impacting people's health every day. I think the city uh, could do a better job of making sure that um, it's a top priority for the Department of Water Management and, and, and for the mayor's office. So this funding from the infrastructure bill, do you think that that will help speed up the process? You know, I, I think it will help, right? But I think funding isn't the only thing needed to tackle these types of large infrastructure problems. As we noted, the city of Chicago has the most lead service lines of any city in the country, right, estimating around 400,000. Uh, so, you know, money, right, is, is definitely needed. But the other part is uh, you have to have a plan, right, in place. You have to have public education in place, and you kind of have to have the, the actual institutional infrastructure built out to do it. I think part of that uh, lives with that. Um, you know, Chicago-led service line replacement program, but it needs to do a better job of of really, you know, when the rubber meets the road, getting to work. Jeremy, Mayor Lightfoot said the city's lead service lines are a legacy issue. How so? So uh, one thing we know particularly about the city of Chicago is that they mandated the use of lead service lines until 1986. In the context of lead history, that's fairly recent, right? When we've known decades before then that lead was poison, right? We begin to tackle lead in, in our gasoline, you know, tackling lead in your home, but yet uh, the city mandated the use of lead service lines through uh, the late 80s and only, you know, stopped doing it because it became a ban. It was, you know, a federal ban. Uh, so you got to think, right, they were, you know, essentially decades behind other communities who stopped installing these these pipes in the use and building out homes as well. So it, it really is a legacy issue that's pretty unique. How can people find out if they have a lead service line? So there are a couple of different ways to go about it. Um, the best thing and the first thing you could do, right, is, is call your water department to see, right? And, and in many instances, that would be recommend, right, first calling your water department to maybe see if they have records or have an idea of, of where the pipes are and where you're, you know, whether you might have a, a lead service line. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other piece of that is is potentially uh, kind of going down where the lead service line enters the house and taking a look at it. Uh, sometimes you can visually see it uh, when you go in kind of where your water 
uh, you know, lead service line comes in typically in a basement or some sort of crawl space. You can kind of take a look and see if, you know, that service line is lead or, or copper or something else uh, as well. And, and that doesn't necessarily confirm it, right, but that may give you an idea of what may be coming in. And the other piece of that is also, uh, you know, calling to get your water tested, right, mm-hmm. not to say that, you know, lead pipes are the only source of, of lead. You could also have internal plumbing that's lead, but uh, that could also be a good indicator, right, when your samples come back and if there are high levels of lead. The city's uh, taking applications for two programs for homeowners who want to replace their lead pipes. Tell us more about those uh, those programs. What are the details and, and who qualifies? Yeah, so the city has uh, you know created the Chicago Lead Service Line Replacement Program you know, last summer, kind of September or so, uh, 2020. Uh, like I mentioned, it's about a year and a half in. The components of that program are, are twofold. It's a homeowner lead service line replacement program, homeowner initiated replacement program in which the homeowner says, hey, you know, I, I want to get ahead of the curve. I'd like to help, you know, with this process of replacement. I'd like to pay for uh, the private side of my lead service line. As a part of that program, the city says, okay, we'll take care of the public side. Uh, you take care of the side of the service line that runs under your property. Uh, and as a part of that, we'll, you know, we'll waive permit fees and other fees to make that cost a, a bit more affordable. That's one program. The other program is called the Homeowner uh, Equity Lead Service Line Replacement Program, in which a homeowner can call and, and say, hey, I'd like to apply to get my lead service line replaced free of charge. There are um, some economic standards that need to be met. There are some testing standards that need to be met to show that your lead levels are above uh, 15 parts per billion. Uh, they recently revamped that to show that if you have a, a home uh, with children under a certain age in it, uh, you may be able to waive certain uh, testing standards above 15 parts per billion. I think if you can show it's above maybe 10 or 12 as well. And that one is free of charge if you qualify for it through the application, your full lead service line is in place. And if someone doesn't qualify for either of the programs, do they have other options? Uh, at this point, no, unfortunately. Right with the city, their focus has been the Chicago, you know, lead service line replacement program. So as you mentioned, if you can't afford to do it on the homeowner, you know, initiated side and you don't qualify, right, you make just a little bit too much mm-hmm. to pay for, uh, you know, to, to, to receive a free one on the equity side. Uh, you know, residents are essentially in the middle, right, and, and waiting for the city to, you know, initiate program and implement programming that gets to everybody's pipes in a, in a quicker manner. And I want to note that you can find more information about the city's lead service line replacement program at leadsafechicago.com. Jeremy, what else do you think needs to be done at the policy level to address the issue? I think there are a, a, a number of things. Right? I think it was helpful to have the state legislation you know, in place that's kind of going to move the city in a direction and, and, and municipalities in a direction to come up with an inventory to know where the pipes are, to come up with an actual plan within, with, you know, within a couple of years. But then also, I think, from a, uh, you know, from a local level and from a policy standpoint, uh, the city could be making sure, particularly on the homeowner equity side, right, making sure that we're, we're removing kind of any barriers to applying and getting your lead service line replaced. I mm-hmm. mentioned there are certain standards that need to be met, economic standards, testing standards, and so on. But we realize that uh, with no level of lead being safe, uh, the city could essentially, you know, waive that, that requirement that you test above 15 parts per billion and say, hey, if you have a lead service line and you make under this amount of money, uh, your pipe can be replaced. You can apply. And I think that would go uh, a very long way. As the city and state work to remove lead pipes, how can people protect themselves from lead-contaminated water? Yeah, you know, I, I think kind of as I mentioned, one thing to do is, uh, you know, call the city to get your water tested, right, to get it sampled. I think that's very helpful from there. I know the city has a program where it's offering, 
you know, faucet filters with replacements for free, mm-hmm. uh, which a lot of folks don't know about, right? The city could do a better job of, of making sure that they're pushing that out there so residents know what their options are. And then also making sure that you're flushing your water, right, and uh, before you're using it for, for five minutes, right, to make sure that you're flushing it out. But in the, in the interim, as they're trying to protect themselves, uh, you know, getting your water tested, you know, using a faucet filter and make sure you're flushing it. Briefly, before I let you go, Jeremy, what else are you going to be focusing on? Because I know these environmental issues are, are personal to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think in addition to these issues of, of land service line replacement throughout, you know, Chicago and throughout Illinois, uh, we still have the broader issue of water access and affordability, right? So that's the other piece, right? Yeah. We're thinking about, you know, people in Chicago, many of whom are getting their uh, water, drinking water through what we would say is a, a toxic straw, a lead straw, Right, you're also paying some, you know, significantly high rates as well, right? So not only could your water potentially be poison, but you're also then paying for poison water at, you know, two to three times more what you were paying ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So in addition to replacing the infrastructure, also ensuring that, you know, all people have, you know, access to, you know, safe, clean, affordable water. Well, that is Jeremy Orr. He's a senior attorney for the Safe Water Initiative at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I want to note, you can find more information about the city's lead service line replacement program at leadsafechicago.org. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. So let's hear about another way the infrastructure bill could improve life for Illinoisans. Internet outages like the one that many Comcast customers experienced earlier this week, they starkly remind us how we rely on high-speed Internet, especially during the pandemic. Many Chicagoans lack adequate broadband access in their homes, but the big infrastructure bill out of Washington could start to close the so-called digital divide. Later, you'll hear from Hal Woods, chief of policy for Kids First. His organization is part of Chicago Connected, a project that's given high-speed Internet to over 60,000 students in the city at no cost. Adrienne Furness is executive director of the Benton Institute for Broadband and Society, which helps states increase broadband access. And the extent to which many communities experience digital segregation cannot be overestimated. Internet service providers are either not delivering service to people, which is usually for a lot of people in rural communities or communities of color, but it also means that people cannot afford to subscribe to the internet or don't have the skills or devices in order to use broadband service. So does this include the the kind of device they're using? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people are accessing the internet on mobile phones, and we don't look at that as a particularly good way for people to do things like apply for jobs or kids to do their homework. So, of course, just like many high-income people have both mobile phones and desktop or laptop computers, that would be an ideal situation for everyone in the U.S. to have both the access at home as well as access on the go. Give us an overview, Hal, of broadband access in Cook County. Uh, Well, in Cook County, of which obviously Chicago makes up a significant portion, about one out of four households don't have broadband. And I think while there are certainly some communities, both within the city, within the broader county, that lack that infrastructure, um, what we see more is a lack of adoption, uh, which is really making broadband more affordable um, or other potential adoption-related barriers as well. It's not just a problem in rural communities, right? 
No, absolutely. We see it uh, in many urban areas, uh, both within the city, but also within uh, urban areas of uh, Cook County as well. So where in Chicago is accessing high speed Internet difficult? Um, primarily on the south and the west sides, uh, where there is a uh, limited uh, number of carriers that can actually provide um, service. Um, but sometimes those carriers don't actually provide high-speed internet. Um, so there might be kind of a minimal um, internet offering, but it might not be the 100 uh, megabytes uh, uh, download and 10 megabytes upload that we see in other areas of the city. So what are some reasons for this? Really, um, it's multifold. Um, I think traditionally, uh, internet service providers haven't made those investments because they didn't believe that they would see a really a sufficient rate of return on their investment. Um, that's improved in recent years, but we still see some areas of the city where the number of providers is limited and the, with a limited infrastructure to also be able to access truly high-speed internet. Mm-hmm. Well, I know some parts of the city uh, have... Uh... Residents don't have the option of who provides the internet, right? And, and some internet plans aren't actually offered in all of the neighborhoods. What's your uh, sense of why that is? I think it comes down to those internet service providers making those infrastructure investments yeah. um, and really understanding that certain communities in the state of Chicago where we see in Lincoln Park, where I think over 95% um, have, have that kind of high-speed connectivity. We've seen that through census data. But you go to, to an area like Austin, only uh, one out of three households in Austin um, lack high-speed internet access. In Humboldt Park, one out of three. West Englewood as a community area, one out of two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important to ensure that there's not only the infrastructure, but also that we make broadband more affordable so families can access it um, when they do have the service coverage. Well, how you're talking directly with, with community members. So what are they telling you about how this is impacting their lives, not having access to high-speed internet? I think it really hurts uh, people's ability to access the resources that many of us take for granted. You know, at the onset of the pandemic, we saw a high correlation uh, between uh, the city's public health data um, in terms of high COVID rates and low internet connectivity rates. Now, again, I'm not saying that's causation, but certainly a correlation there. So the ability to have a conversation with your doctor uh, over a telehealth platform rather than putting your health at risk by traveling, usually on public transit or maybe choosing not to travel mm-hmm. uh, to a doctor's office is substantial. Uh, we also saw that people were filing for unemployment. And if you didn't have internet access, you had to wait on a, a phone call line for eight hours sometimes uh, back in when you think about April of 2020. Um, So I think telehealth resources, access information, and then really from an employment lens, um, also access to opportunities to learn new skills or to improve one's earning potential or even to apply for a job as well. Adrienne, you're involved with Illinois Connected Communities. Can you talk more about this engagement strategy and, and how this and other programs uniquely position our state to respond to this challenge of increasing access? Well, absolutely. The Illinois Connected Communities Program is a collaboration with the State of Illinois Office of Broadband and the University of Illinois Extension. And it is a community-driven process that educates communities and helps them plan strategies that their particular community faces around broadband access, adoption, and utilization. And we look at this kind of community education engagement and planning is particularly important as funds are coming uh, either through ARPA or through the infrastructure bill. Um, So the communities are ready to utilize broadband to meet other community needs. Obviously, Hal referenced health care and education, economic development. So it's just really important to get them up to speed quickly before they enter into conversations with Internet service providers so the community can define whether they need affordable Internet, whether, of course, the Internet should be provided to 
all neighborhoods in the community and not just those that provide that return on investment. So this program put 12 communities through a almost nine-month-long process uh, last year, and we have eight communities engaged this year, and we plan to continue the program. It is backed also, uh, like the Chicago Connected program, uh, with philanthropic dollars, and uh, it's important to get philanthropy engaged in this effort as well. Let's shift to talking about that infrastructure bill, Adrienne. What support does it give to increasing access to broadband internet in places where the infrastructure for it just doesn't exist yet? Well, first, let me take a step back, if you don't mind, and just talk about what Congress officially found, which I think is so important setting that stage, that access to affordable, reliable, high-speed broadband was essential to full participation in modern life, and that the persistent digital divide is a barrier to economic competitiveness and equitable distribution of essential public services like health care and education. And then it also acknowledges that the digital divide disproportionately affects communities of color, low-income areas, and rural areas, and that really for society to progress, the benefits of broadband should be broadly enjoyed by everybody. So given those philosophical points, then you see how the money is flowing from that, um, that $65 billion. It's such an historic funding opportunity for our nation and for states, counties, and communities, and that money, how it's allocated to meet those philosophical points about broadband access, affordability, and utilization, I think is critical. What kinds of support will the bill give to families who might not be able to afford the internet? Sure. Well, there's $42 billion in grants to the states to deploy last-mile broadband networks. There's $14 billion to address affordability of broadband service, and then almost $3 billion to increase digital equity and inclusion strategies, and that includes... Um, things like access to affordable devices like laptops and desktop computers and also fostering applications and online content that's designed to enable and encourage self-sufficiency, participation, and collaboration at the community level. So I think broadly the bill is trying to address what we call the three legs of the stool, access, adoption, which is another word for subscribing to service and utilization. Hal, what are some of the limitations of the bill for places like Chicago? Well, I think uh, twofold. I think one, um, in terms of the infrastructure investment, a place like Chicago where there is a certain amount of services available, but affordability um, or additional adoption drivers might be still bearish for folks to actually adopt the internet. Um, we probably won't see much of an infrastructure upgrade in Chicago as a result of that portion of the bill. However, uh, the affordability component that, that Adrian spoke to is game-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It is something where we did have the emergency broadband benefit that was providing a subsidy about $50 a month to qualifying families. And there's a whole host of ways that families can qualify. That's going to reduce now to $30 a month, but it is going to be sustained over multiple years. And so we're excited by the fact that the federal government is really taking an active role in actually providing uh, or reducing the bear, the affordability barrier to families. I would also be remiss not to acknowledge, though, that this does require a family essentially applying uh, to the National Lifeline Verifier uh, website, which includes the necessity for social security number. Mm-hmm. So I worry a lot about our, our undocumented residents here in Chicago mm-hmm. or other residents that don't want to uh, include personal information in the federal government, which is a little bit what we've been able to do with Chicago Connected to make uh, that, that not as onerous or as a difficult decision to make. What do you think about the Internet being a public utility? It's a complex question. Um, I think you've seen it in lots of other places, um, certainly around the country. Uh, There's certainly different ways to do it. I'm actually very excited because uh, it was not in the infrastructure bill, but actually in the capital funds from ARP bill that came out a little bit a while ago. It actually allows um, cities that even though they have serviceability, uh, they can actually do capital projects to actually do uh, community-based broadband networks. And so Mm -hmm. actually in the budget that was just passed by the city, um, I think a week ago, Um, There's actually a $10 million uh, line item to actually support that. So it'll be interesting to see how municipalities like Chicago and across the country um, think about ways of potentially making this a a public utility. I think we all saw through the pandemic that Internet accessibility is no longer a luxury. It is a necessity uh, in our cities and in our communities more broadly. Well, to that end, talk about what having access to it will mean for students and their families. Uh, you know, last year when we when we launched Chicago Connected, um, we really prioritized the students that needed it the most. And we saw that the, actually those students had higher attendance rates than the district average. So we know that this was a, a lifeline to families and to students to be able to get online during the pandemic uh, when that was the only way to go to school uh, prior to CPS starting in person. But this internet connectivity is going to mean access to information, again, access to telehealth resources. Chicago Public Libraries offers free online homework help. Uh, students don't have to go to the library to access the internet once they leave school to be able to access it from home Mm -hmm. uh, and workforce development opportunities as well. So it's just especially with jobs transitioning either temporarily or permanently to more online, families and and adults being able to earn new skills uh, for a new job or also to upskill in a current job as well. But last word to you, Adrienne, what effect will greater access to broadband internet have on workforce development? Well, I think that's actually an incredibly important question. You know, Hal just talked about the fact that middle skills jobs, which really require uh, the kind of digital literacy that needs to be promoted and is being promoted through the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, one of the things that a lot of communities are focused on, and specifically in Illinois, let me just give you a quick example, Um, Governor Pritzker and um, President Preckwinkle uh, formulated the Connect Illinois Computer Equity Network, and there's a hub in the Southlands of Cook County Mm -hmm. and a hub in Belleville, Illinois, and each of them are working with a workforce development group to refurbish and then redistribute uh, laptop and desktop computers to the close to one million people in Illinois that don't have those devices. So you see that kind of workforce development pairing with broadband that I think is going to be critical not only for the economy, but for uh, communities in general. That is Adrienne Furness of Benton Institute for Broadband and Society and Hal Woods, Chief of Policy of Kids First. Thanks for joining us. Well, that's it for today's Reset. And for many of you with the privilege of high-speed internet access, you have no excuse for not subscribing to this podcast. 
Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll meet again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.